Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Today we interview Donald Hoffman, who is a cognitive scientist, professor, and author of more than 90 scientific papers and three books, including Visual Intelligence, How We Create What We See. He received his bachelor's degree from UCLA, go Bruins, I'm a fellow Bruin, in quantitative psychology, and his PhD from MIT in computational psychology. We talk about what both of those things are in this interview. He is now a professor at UC Irvine and speaks widely. He just gave a great, amazing TED Talk in March and also consults for major corporations. I don't know where to begin in telling you what you'll learn about in this episode with Donald Hoffman because we covered so much ground and really went into the science of consciousness. And this is a very highly intelligent man who is able to speak speak on so many different levels from uh, holographic theory of black holes We talk about what the function of consciousness he is currently trying to computate, um, uh, have a mathematical equation to consciousness. He explains uh, space-time and how it actually may not exist. Um, He talks about the need to question all assumptions that we make about reality and that we really do not see reality as it is. And all the scientific theories, or I shouldn't say theories, the scientific proof behind it to back that up. All I can say is this, this is absolutely fascinating interview. And if you're like me, and you like geeking out on uh, science of consciousness, then you're going to love this episode. Can't wait for you to hear. So without further ado, let's jump in. Hi, Don. Thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Susanna. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, as I talked about earlier, I found you through your amazing uh, TED Talk that was done in March in Vancouver. Um, I also saw you on Closer to Truth on PBS and have just been really fascinated by your work. Wonderful. I'm glad you enjoyed those talks. Yes. Yeah. So, so what I'd love to do is um, have you tell our listeners a bit about your story, your background, and what brought you to where you are today. Okay. Well, since my youth, I've been very interested in philosophical questions, in particular about the nature of perception and reality. And even as a teenager, I was wondering, you know, based on the science I knew at the time, it seemed like we were just machines, biological machines. And I was very interested in understanding if that was all there was to us or not. So I started studying that, and I ended up going to UCLA and and studying quantitative psychology, like mathematics and computer science and psychology, um, and to try to get more background to understand this question. Are are humans just machines, or is there something more to us? And uh, ran across some interesting research at UCLA in one of my classes about a guy named David Marr at MIT, who was doing some very interesting work on visual perception and artificial intelligence. And so I went to MIT and, and did uh, was his student and David Marr. So it was David Marr and Whitman Richards were my advisors there. And I worked on artificial intelligence and computer vision, uh, again, as a way to try to understand the relationship between perception and reality. And to ask using artificial intelligence, is there anything about humans that is beyond uh, what we could explain as machine. So that was sort of got me launched into this whole area uh, with my philosophical interests. Wow. And and to go, go back to the beginning, um, when you were a kid and you were wondering if we were just machines, could you walk me through what, what sparked that? Well, you know, did that come from somewhere or what, what was that? Well, I got conflicting messages from what I was studying in science and what I would hear at uh, the local church, right? Uh, They were very conflicting messages. Science was quite clear that uh, we're just physical beings and uh, you can explain everything through uh, mechanical means. 
Um, at least that was my interpretation at the time. And yet there seemed to be, uh, you know, something beyond just the me- mechanical that was being discussed in, in the religious setting. And so they seemed to be at odds. And I really tried to, I wanted to have a, a framework, a way of thinking about the world that would incorporate both. And I'm still trying to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and thank, I think a lot of us are. So thank you for your work on that. Um, and then going to your work at UCLA, um, did you call it, and I may mess up the name, computational psychology? Was that the um, name? Well, that was actually the, the name of my PhD at MIT was computational psychology. At, at, at UCLA, it was called quantitative psychology. And what does that mean? Well, um, it was a small major. In a student body of roughly 30,000 students, there were only a handful of us in that major. And it was, it was like a, a major in psychology and a minor in computer science and mathematics. So it was a nice way to try to, I mean, my goal was to understand rigorously what it means to be a human being and to get a rigorous understanding of what it means to be a machine and then to try to see if, if there's anything about humans that um, is not just a machine. And so to do that without just waving your hands, I wanted to get uh, as much mathematical and computational rigor in my background as possible. And so when you started to do the work of artificial intelligence, was, that was at MIT, is that right? That's right. Yeah. When you started to do that work, um, is it comparing, can we create a robot or whatever the artificial intelligence is, and what would be different about a human being that we couldn't create? Is that? Yeah, that was sort of my hope was to explore, you know, very, very concretely to try to build robotic, for example, vision systems, what I was working on. How do you build computers with robot eyes, you know, camera eyes? that can see in 3D, that can see colors, can recognize objects, drive cars, and so forth. Uh, and, and it turns out we can do all that stuff, and, and it works pretty well. And, and in fact, there's no reason for the computers and robots to not do better than us. Well, I, have, we, I have every expectation that they will beat us at our own game quite handily. So, so the, the, it's a very interesting question to ask. What is it that um, is special about us? That and it is certainly not our ability to perform these various tasks. So, the, so but in artificial intelligence, the nice thing that that really attracted me to working with David Marr was his attitude about vision. Was um, up until that point, you could have various theories about how vision worked and write a paper about it and speculate and do you know experiments on humans. But but Marr had this attitude of um, if you think you've got a theory about how vision works, build it. Show me a robot vision system that actually builds, that, that you built, that, that implements your theory, and then we'll talk. Until then, you don't have anything to say. And I like that attitude of, of being very, very rigorous with your theories to the point where you actually implemented them so that you really knew what you're talking about. And so from this work, what did you discover was special about a human being versus artificial intelligence? Well... What, not much. <laughs> I, what I discovered is not different is the ability to, to for example, see in 3D, to, to do all sorts of visual manipulations. It, it, it just seemed to me that um, in every practical application, um, there's no principled reason why computers can't beat us. Um, I've actually programmed computers to do recognition of various visual object classes where I've, I've programmed them to have a learning algorithm. And eventually the machine beats me. So I programmed the machine, but I programmed it with a learning algorithm. I give it a bunch of training examples, and eventually um, I, I'm learning from the machine. It, it's actually better than me. So, so it's not that they can't learn. They can learn better than us. It's not that they can't see. They can see better than us. Um, I, I expect them, you know, to fully trounce us. I mean, they are already the world's best chess player as a computer, and I expect them to trounce us in in every 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 realm. So, so the the realm I focused on now is the the realm of conscious experiences. Um, you know, we do have conscious experiences, and and one thing that I I eventually came to realize is that. A lot of people in, in, in my field think that um, conscious experiences, I mean, well, well, I'll put it this way, 
as far as artificial intelligence has gotten, as far as science has gotten, um, we, we've made great advances, but we still don't really understand the relationship between consciousness and the brain. That is a big open mystery. And so that's where I've been focusing. I mean, it's one thing to get a, a machine to do all sorts of things as well as the brain, but we've not had any scientific theory that's generally accepted by the, the majority of scientists about what consciousness is and how it's related to brain activity. So that's where there's still an open mystery and where the, I think where the action is, I'm trying to understand um, if there's a difference between humans and machines, what that difference might be. So I think the action now is in the area of consciousness. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, advanced consciousness, like being self-reflective and having a sense of yourself and, and so forth. I'm talking about very simple consciousness, like being able to, you know, enjoy the, the smell of a rose or the taste of garlic or, you know, the, the visual experience of the color of, of a red rose, something like that. So it's, um, it's really the low-level perceptual aspects of conscious experience that are, that are even mysterious to us at this point. So as far as science is concerned, the, the verdict is still out about you know, whether people are machines or not. Um, and the wild card is consciousness. We've not been able to have any scientific theory that says, ah, yes, we can actually now show that consciousness just is a product of the machine or just is a machine. And in fact, I, I in, in looking at this problem, published a paper in the journal Consciousness and Cognition a few years ago, I don't know, seven, maybe seven years ago, uh, in which I actually proved mathematically that conscious experiences are not the same thing as programs in computers. So that that I was able to prove. So whatever consciousness is, it's not identical to computer programs. So I finally made some concrete progress on on you know my my dream for of understanding the relationship between machines and consciousness. But it's a negative result. It's it's the result that uh, machine programs are not identical to conscious experiences. Um, but that still leaves open the possibility that machine programs could somehow cause conscious experiences. Uh, but I've never seen a theory about how that might be um, that, that holds any water. So, so it's, it's fun. I mean, that's, this is the normal state in, in, a, in a vigorous, healthy science where you have lots of interesting ideas and lots of open questions, and we don't yet know how it's going to turn out. Wow. And, and so what are, what are some of the theories that you're working with right now around consciousness? Well, I, I've, I've been um, playing with the idea that maybe the physical world um, is a little bit different than what we think, um, and that therefore the relationship between the physical world and consciousness is a little bit different than what we think. Most people in my field, you know, my field, I mean, I, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and with background in artificial intelligence as well, and, and most people in my field... Um, are convinced that consciousness is, is caused by brain activity. And, but the, I've been concerned. I've been trying to think about how that might be and trying to come up with my own theories about how brain activity could cause conscious experiences and then reading the dozens of attempts that, that are made in the field. And, and none of them, it's not that they don't work. They're, they're not even plausible. There aren't any remotely plausible theories yet. And so it's, it's like we're making some fundamental mistake here, some fundamentally mistaken approach to the whole thing. So I decided to step back and, and look at perception more carefully in, in our assumption that the physical world and the brain causes our conscious experiences. And, and the place I started to look was in um, one of the assumptions that vision researchers make and, and, and cognitive scientists make is that um, our perceptual systems have evolved, but they, and, and everybody is, you know agrees that to that. Our perceptual systems, like the rest of our body, are the products of evolution um, by natural selection and, and genetic drift and, and so forth. But most researchers think that that entails that our perceptions have been shaped by natural selection to be accurate, to, to show us reality as it is. 
And that does seem plausible. I mean, the, the informal argument that seems plausible is uh, that those of our ancestors who saw the world more accurately had a competitive advantage compared to those who saw less accurately and, and therefore were more likely to uh, you know, outcompete the others and pass on their genes for their perceptual systems. And so after you know, thousands of generations, we can be fairly confident that we're the offspring of those who saw more accurately and that we see quite accurately. So that, that seems like a very reasonable um, story about perception from evolutionary theory, but it turns out to be entirely false. Um, and, and when I actually started to look at the theory of evolution using the mathematics of evolutionary game theory and um, evolutionary graph theory and genetic algorithms, uh, my students and I discovered that, um, for reasons that I can go into, but it's, it's um, you know, it gets a little technical, that um, it's not the case that, in fact, we were able recently just to prove a theorem that if you have an organism that sees reality as it is, and is competing with an organism that sees none of reality, but is only tuned to the fitness consequences in its environment, the fitness function, um, then the organism that sees reality as it is can never win. So that's that's not just a simulation. Now we have a theorem. So so what that shows is that evolution does not shape perceptual systems to see reality as it is. It shapes our perceptual systems simply to keep us alive long enough to have kids. That's that's really what it's all about. Um, and so that means that I can't trust that my perceptions of space and time and physical objects are an insight into the nature of reality as it is. Rather, what evolution is telling us, what the theory of evolution clearly entails, is that our perceptual systems are a species-specific adaptation, not designed to show us reality as it is, but in fact um, shaped to hide reality because we don't need to know reality. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. So it, so it leads to this, this notion of, um, that I mentioned in my TED talk about a desktop. So, you know, if you have a uh, computer with a, you know, a desktop and there's a, an icon on the desktop that's blue and rectangular in the lower right-hand corner of your screen for some text file that you're editing, um, that doesn't mean that the text file itself is blue, rectangular, and in the lower right-hand corner of your computer. I mean, anybody who thought that would be misunderstanding the purpose of the desktop. The desktop is there really to hide the complexity of the computer, the diodes and resistors and all that software, and to give you eye candy, to give you simple symbols that uh, allow you to edit your file or, or edit a photo and so forth um, without being um, distracted by unnecessary details about the reality of the computer. And that's apparently what these theorems about evolution are telling us. Evolution has not given us perceptions about reality as it is. In fact, it's given us a perceptual system that, like your desktop, is intended to hide reality because you don't need to know reality. You just need eye candy that allows you to act in an adaptive fashion so that you can survive. So, so the idea then is that that three-dimensional space, as you perceive it around you right now, and time, are the desktop. And physical objects are just icons on that desktop. And none of it is intended to resemble reality as it is. In fact, it's there to hide reality and simply to guide adaptive behavior. And this is a long way now to get to answer your question about consciousness in the brain, because the, the, the reason I had to take this circuitous route is it, it now means that we can't assume that what we see in terms of objects in space and time um, is the true nature of reality as it is. And that means that objects in space and time really aren't showing us the true causal structure of reality as it is. What do you so mean by I, that, the causal structure? Yeah, so if I, if I um, you know, hit a ball, a tennis ball with a racket, it sure looks for all the world, like the tennis racket caused the ball to careen away across the court. And for casual purposes, that's, that's a harmless fiction. But what these evolutionary simulations clearly show is that that is a fiction. It's a useful fiction. It's, it's the same kind of useful fiction as if I 
drag an icon on my desktop to the trash can icon. You know, say, take that blue rectangular icon, drag it to a trash can icon, and the file gets deleted. It's it's a harmless fiction to say, yeah, the movement of that icon on the desktop caused the file to be deleted. And for the casual user, that's that's fine. But it's literally false. The the pixels of the icon on the desktop caused nothing about the file to be deleted. It's just a useful fiction. And the same thing is true about you know causality between three-dimensional objects in space and time as, as we perceive them. The racket hitting the tennis ball, it looks like it caused the ball to cream away. And in everyday life, that's a useful fiction. It's, it's harmless. But it's not a harmless fiction when we try to understand consciousness and the brain. That's when we have to get more serious. Neurons in the brain are three-dimensional objects um, that we perceive in space and time. And what this theory of evolution is telling us is that um, it's a fiction to claim that neural activity uh, has any causal consequences. It's a useful fiction in everyday life. So, you know, for everyday neuroscience, it's, it's a harmless and useful fiction. But when we're trying to understand how consciousness is related to the brain, it's no longer a harmless fiction. It actually, I claim, is the reason we've made no progress in understanding how brain activity and conscious experiences are related. So would that make the assumption that consciousness is potentially outside of space and time? It's outside of space and time in, in the sense that um, space and time is a species-specific construct. It's not the nature. You know, space and time are not the condition in which we live, but uh, modes by which we perceive. Uh, I, Einstein said something to that effect, I believe. Uh, so, so, yes, uh, consciousness, human consciousness, is not confined to space and time because space and time themselves are simply modes of perception of our consciousness. God, it's just, I, I, I don't even know where to wrap my head around it. Um, a, a metaphor, and help me if this if this sounds correct, a metaphor that I, one of our other um, interviewees had said is that if you, if you looked at space and time as a room, past, present, future all exists at once in that room. But because of our senses, we go through the room in a very specific linear way, because that's the only way we can understand it to your point, right? Um, but it doesn't mean that past, present, and future isn't all in that room at the same time. We just don't experience it that way. Is What's your yeah. thought on that? Well, that, that, now, that expression is, in fact, the standard way that... Um, Physicists, for example, you, in, in special relativity, talk about it. Einstein's um, space-time loaf, as they call it, has um, three dimensions of space and a dimension of time all in one big loaf. And it, it from the point of view of, of his mathematics, or at least the interpretation that's standardly given to the mathematics of, of Minkowski space, it all exists at once. But there, there are, even among physicists, some who doubt that that's the right way to describe Einstein's special relativistic or general relativistic space-time. Um, from, from my point of view, um, it's, it's even more radical than the space-time loaf notion. It's not that all of space and time exists at once. It's that space and time are, are useful fictions that a particular species uses to get through the day. So, so where I differ from the physicists who talk about that space-time loaf, that you know, space and time all exist and we just go through it a little bit at a time, they actually think that it's part of objective reality. And, and we're just, our perceptions are limited and we, we travel through that reality one time step at a time. I'm saying something radically different. I'm saying that that whole space-time loaf itself is just a useful fiction of the human mind. It's not an objective reality at all. And so what is the reality? We don't know. Well, there, now that, that's... That's an interesting question. Um, I'll, I'll make it really hard for myself. I mean, one, one objection that, that people have given to me is to say, well, look, Hoffman, if, you, if you're saying that our perceptions uh, are not showing us reality as it is, you're making science impossible. I mean, we can't use the evidence of our senses to constrain our theories of reality, so you're, you're making it absolutely impossible to do science. And, and, and I'm saying something. I am saying something radical that the, our, our senses do not show us reality as it is. But it doesn't stop our science at all. Um, all I've shown is that one particular theory about the nature of objective reality, namely 
that uh, objective reality in some sense resembles our perceptions, that particular theory of objective reality is false. Fine. So we throw that one theory away. It's one we particularly like, and we seem as human beings to be sort of inclined to believe it naturally. Even as little children, we sort of assume that we see reality as it is. It's sort of a default assumption. Well, it turns out to be false. So we throw that assumption away. But that doesn't stop science. We can now, as scientists, propose any one of an infinite number of theories about the nature of objective reality and how that proposed objective reality relates to our perceptual systems, and then from that theory make predictions about what we should see in various kinds of experiments. So, so there's for the first point, I guess, is that the scientific enterprise has not stopped at all. We can continue to pursue our science and try to understand what objective reality is, even though we now know from our best theory of evolution that it's almost surely the case that none of our perceptions resemble reality as it is. Now, my own particular version of reality that I'm playing with, and, and again, as a scientist, I must say uh, up front, I don't know what reality is. I mean, that's flat out. I, I don't know. Um, but um, as a scientist, it's you know our job to pro make proposals that are speculative uh, and, and then to make them mathematically precise and to get them precise to the point where we can make empirical predictions that we can go test and try to falsify our theories so that we can revise them. So the direction I'm going right now is to, to propose that maybe um, we should try to think of consciousness as fundamental, as a fundamental nature of reality, but not, not in a hand-wavy sense. I'm, I'm asking, and I'm working with a team of researchers, and I've published a paper where we actually propose a mathematically precise model of consciousness where where we're not saying okay there's a consciousness emerges from a prior physical reality somehow we're not saying that because i've now concluded based on evolution that there is no prior physical reality that's that's a mistake so so what i'm proposing instead is let's try to ask can we with mathematical precision write down a theory of consciousness on its own terms what is consciousness as consciousness, not as something derivative on something else? Can we describe consciousness on its own terms? And it turns out to be, I think, fairly simple. So we published a mathematical theory um, last year in, in Frontiers of, of Perception, the journal, and um, where we, we have a mathematical model, and we're in the process of refining that model. I think that you know already in the last year, I found little changes that I'd like to make to it. So that's that's normal science, right? You propose a mathematically precise theory uh, so that you can find out precisely why you're wrong and then precisely what you need to fix it. And so we're now in the healthy process of finding out what's wrong with our first model and fixing it. And our goal is to, sh to solve what's called the mind-body problem, but in a direction that's an unusual direction. M most people are trying to understand the mind-body problem, namely, how is your conscious experience related to your, your brain? They, they try to understand it by saying, how does the brain cause your conscious experiences? And we've made literally no progress uh, in a theory that would explain how the brain could cause our conscious experiences. No progress at all, and there's no plausible ideas about that. So I'm trying the other direction. Oh, and by the way, I should say, by the way, that there's all sorts of empirical evidence that there are correlations, hundreds of correlations between brain activity and conscious experiences. So I'm not disputing that. It's quite evident that if I damage area V4 of your brain, uh, in both, both hemispheres of your brain, you can no longer see color experiences at all. And if I damage an area called MT in both sides of your brain, your ability to see motion is is impaired or disappears. So there are all, and, and those are just two, there are hundreds of correlations between brain activity and conscious experiences. So, so I'm not disputing that brain activity and conscious experiences are highly correlated, but the what I am disputing is the claim that the brain activity causes the conscious experiences. That is where no one has been able to come up with plausible theory. So, so what we're doing is the opposite. We're saying Let's start with the theory, a mathematical theory of consciousness on its own terms. And then to solve the mind-body problem, we have to show 
that we can take this theory of consciousness and get back all of quantum mechanics and new predictions in quantum mechanics. Maybe, for example, a theory of quantum gravity for the first time. And so that's what uh, my collaborators and I are doing. We're trying to show that if you start with a mathematical model of consciousness, you can get back as a special case uh, under certain so-called boundary conditions uh, what we call our current physics. So that's, that's the attempt I'm trying to, to take to understand reality as it is, consciousness, um, and the machine. <laughs> if this works, by the way, it would, it would show that we are not just machines, um, that consciousness is something above and beyond just the machine. So, I, There was a part of me that wants to ask about the mathematical computation of consciousness, but then I hesitate because I have no idea what but is there a layman's way of explaining how you begin to approach that? Well, I, I can explain. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it at a couple levels without actually doing the math because I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't be very helpful. But but there's some intuitions that that guide the mathematics, and one intuition is that um, surely one aspect of conscious seems to be that we um, we have perceptual experiences like the smell of garlic or you know the color red or, you know, feelings of touch and so forth. So you have to have a mathematical aspect to your theory of consciousness that, that models perceptual experiences. And so we do. Then it, it seems like based on your perceptual experiences, um, you have, um, you, you can take certain actions. You might decide to try to act uh, in certain ways. So you seem to have to have a mathematical aspect to um, your definition of consciousness, or what, what I'm calling a conscious agent, that in, includes a mathematical description of the kinds of actions that you can take. And then you need to have a mathematical formalism that, that shows, that, that describes how you decide what actions to take um, in the context of the perceptions that you've had. And so those are some of the key aspects of, of the whole thing. And, and it turns out, um, for those who actually know a little bit of mathematics, the, the mathematics that we use is um, uh, abstract algebra and, and measure theory, and not much more, stochastic processes. It's not, it's not a lot. You can write down in uh, you just the, the full definition of what we call a conscious agent can be written down in two or three lines. It's very, very straightforward. And, and, but the nice thing is that... Um, from that simple beginning, you, by a combinatorial apparatus, can get a very rich um, field coming out of it. And I'll, and I'll give you an, an analogy. Um, everybody, has, I mean, a lot of people have recently seen the movie Enigma about the life of Alan Turing. And Turing was interested in um, the notion of computation and, and building a computer. And he decided he wanted to um, actually come up with a mathematical model of what it means to be able to compute. And so he actually wrote down, and, and it turns out to be very, very simple. In it, You can write it down in three or four lines, um, a mathematical formalism. And we now, in his honor, we call it a Turing machine, uh, T-U-R-I-N-G, not T-O-U-R-I-N-G, a Turing machine in honor of Alan Turing. It's a, it's a drop-dead simple formalism um, that requires really only knowledge of, of set theory pretty much to understand it. And yet that is the foundation of all of modern computer science. Um, the notion of a universal Turing machine comes out of it. The notion of, um, you know, problems that um, are not computable, uh, such as the halting problem. And, and so all, once you have this fundamental and simple formalism an entire very sophisticated edifice can be built on it. Um, and, and that's what has happened in computer science. And so that's what we're hoping to do with, with consciousness. And we're taking a, you know, a tip from Turing here. Can we come up with a very simple formalism for what we call a conscious agent, uh, and then from that build up an entire edifice, which would be a scientific theory of consciousness in all of its complexity? And right now it looks quite promising. Wow, how exciting to be working on that. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, as you were speaking and, and, and joining with it, you were talking about artificial intelligence. I couldn't help but wonder if one day artificial intelligence will help us to answer this question. 
right, that they, I don't, in some way would, as you said, would be smarter than us, right? Or not uh, limited by our senses, or I wonder if, I don't know. I, I absolutely agree. Now, I mean, the the state of play right now, there's um, a, a class of machine learning algorithms called deep learning that um, are our current best efforts at getting computers to to learn and to outperform us. There, there, everybody acknowledges that, you know, that this is the best we've got so far, and it's, it's really quite fabulous, but also that there's something we need to do better. There, there's something about learning that we still haven't quite captured that we'll need to put into the next generation of learning machines. But nevertheless, deep learning in its current formulations can, I think, allow artificial intelligence systems to beat us at our own game and to actually um, make scientific discoveries. So I'm actually, I would welcome, frankly, even, even though I think that there's something about consciousness that uh, is, is not a machine, I would welcome the help of the machines to help me discover what that is and right. to advance the theory of consciousness. <laughs> right. Um, now to throw a different sort of theory, this, um, and I don't know how it relates, but of um, holographic theory, right? That yes. we are, and I'm going to mess you explain this better. Than, well, I want you explain. Um, how does that play into it, of the idea that we are just holograms from somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting that physicists have discovered, I mean, the concrete discovery was that, uh, started with, I believe, black holes, that, that all of the information contained inside of a black hole um, is proportional to the surface area of that black hole in, in Planck units. Uh, and that's stunning, because if you think about it, the volume inside a region is grows up much more quickly than the area around that region, right? So why should the information inside a volume of space be limited by the area surrounding that space? And it turns out people have extended the theorem. It's not just black holes. It's any region of space. And so it, that's led to um, this idea that, that maybe... Um, 3D space as we perceive it is, uh, you know, a construction out of a, a, a fundamentally two-dimensional uh, reality. Now, my view is even more radical, though. I, I'm saying that the very notion of any dimensions of space and time are a species-specific adaptation and are not an insight into the nature of reality as it is. So, so it. It's it's even perhaps more radical than the holographic principle that that's been that's being studied, but which I find quite interesting. Right. Okay. So that goes back to the same um, conversation about space and time being in the room, the loaf theory. Right. It's 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 similar that you're saying right. that there aren't even the dimensions that that's a construct of our of our senses and mind. Exactly. So so the holographic people are 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 still buying. They, they may say that maybe space is not three dimensional. It's only two-dimensional, but they still think it exists um, as a reality and a part of an objective reality. And, and, and that's what I'm claiming um, is almost surely false based on evolutionary theory. Got it. Okay. Wow. Um, so, so taking all of this um, on a practical level of, of how we build it into our daily lives, um, what are you seeing in your work or the practical applications of this work? Well, um, there are several. Um, part of my background has been in in vision science, and you know, trying to build robotic vision systems, and and understanding how human vision works, and trying to be very precise about it, and doing experiments with humans, and 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 then building mathematical models, and and also understanding human attention, and how that works, and. And that turns out to have lots of practical applications. So, so I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. It, it, it seems to most of us that we see all of the world pretty much like a camera, that we see all of reality in pretty high resolution, um, and is, perception is like taking a picture. And, and it turns out it's not at all like taking a picture. If you hold out your arm and put up your thumb, the width of your thumb at arm's length is is about you know all the high resolution that you can see. You have high resolution uh, vision about the width of your thumb at arm's length, 
and the rest of the world is fairly blurry. Now, it doesn't seem like that to you, but the reason is that you, uh, you move your eyes around, and everywhere you look, you put your high-resolution part of your visual system on that little part of the visual world, and you see it in high resolution. And so you have the illusion that you're seeing all of reality in high resolution. In fact, you're seeing a tiny one or two degrees of visual angle in high resolution, and the rest of it in very blurry. And so visual attention is the process whereby you move that little thumb width all over the visual world to get the information you need. Well, so here's one practical application of this. We now know at least four different modules or, or programs in the brain um, by which your attention is, is uh, moved around. And knowing this, and we actually know with some precision, we can actually use this now for marketing, uh, advertising, and product design. We, you know, once we know the programs that move your attention around, we can use it to get attention on the products and, or the parts of products that we want or the advertising that we want and to get attention away from products that uh, are the competitors. So it turns out I, I'm consulting for a number of companies on marketing, advertising, and product design and helping them to get attention on their products um, using detailed knowledge of visual attention and to get attention away from their competitors' products. Hmm. Um, and in what, what, well, in what way? So while as you're doing this, I was doing with my finger and looking around and, and that, and I see it, never noticed that before. Um, but how does that change what the advertisement, because regardless, wherever you're looking is what you're focused on. Well, I'll, I'll give you one concrete I- example. Um, it turns out that there, there are, there are four attentional systems that you can play with, but I'll, uh, so I'll mention two of them and, and how they interact. What, one is just, um, well, I'll mention three of them. So one is very simple. It's looking, things that have high contrast or that are flickering or that have high color contrast will tend to grab your attention subconsciously. It's a process you're not conscious of. You just find that your eye is looking at the things that have you know, high contrast or where there's flicker or twinkle or something like that. Your eyes just go there. And the, the part of the brain called the frontal eye fields is involved in that. But then you can also, um, be, if you're looking for a product, you might be looking for, say, uh, if, you're, if your product is in a, uh, a, an orange bottle, you might be looking for, go into a store and look for orange things. Or if you're out in the forest, you might look for, you might, you might be looking for, say, an apple. And, and so you might be looking for something that's red uh, and round, and you, and you can be looking around, and, and your visual system will, will, will do that. And what, one thing that happens is when you're doing that, if, if you're in the forest and you're looking for an apple and you see a leaf on the ground, you say, okay, well, that's a leaf. It's not an apple. There's no reason to go back and look at that leaf. And so there's something called inhibition of return. You sort of inhibit yourself from going back to that part of the visual world. You don't need to look there. You've already looked there. And you continue to move on. But, but, but here's, the, here's the kicker. Suppose that you're looking for an apple. Uh, and you, you look over there and there's a leaf and that's not an apple so you inhibit that area you look over there there's a tree trunk well that's not an apple you inhibit that then you look over there and there's a lion and you say well that's not an apple well, now the algorithm says well let's just inhibit that and not look back over there at the lion that seems that that's the wrong that's the wrong algorithm now you need to forget the apple and pay full attention to the lion for evolutionary reasons that was a clear prediction of evolutionary theory that uh, Lita Cosmides and, and her colleagues came up with a few years ago at um, UC Santa Barbara. Uh, and it turns out to be correct. There's an attention module built into the brain that's specialized for the category of animate objects. And whatever else you're doing in terms of a visual attention um, gets halted, completely stopped, and in, when, when there's a, uh, an animate object, and instead, you get this animate monitoring system that, that focuses attention and keeps attention on that animate object. Because it could be predator or prey, either one. It could be either one. In either case, you should be interested to keep your eyes on it. So it turns out you can use this in marketing advertising. Suppose that, um, uh, but you need to do it in a clever way. Um, I mean, the unclever way would be to sl- slap an animal on your bottle, right? You, Right, because if, you know if if you do that, and I mean the what that will do is to suppose that uh, you know you're walking down the the, the aisle, um, the animals will grab and hold attention. But 
But, you know, as soon as the competitors find out what you're doing, they'll slap animals in their bottles or faces or whatever. And, like and a lot so of wine now, companies do. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so it's a standoff. So what I've been helping companies to do, and at this point now I can't give specifics because of non-disclosure agreements, but, 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 but at top level, there are ways, tricky ways, to trigger this animate monitoring system of attention without having it look explicitly like an animal. So once you understand how the visual system works, you can play it. And that's what I'm, what I'm helping these companies with. We can put markings on their products and their advertising and displays that no one would recognize as animals, and they grab this monitoring system and grab attention. And so the competition has no idea what's being done and why the product is getting more attention than theirs. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's really quite fascinating. Once you know that's the thing. The visual system is not just a camera. It's constructing the shapes, colors, motions, everything that you see is a very sophisticated construction. We know it, it with mathematical precision a lot of how the visual system is doing it. And once we know how it's working, we can play the system. Um, we can play it, and, and it turns out to be very profitable to com companies to just be able to play the system like a musical instrument and play whatever tune you want. With that knowledge. You know, I watched, um, there's a show called Brain Games on National Geographic with Jason yes. Silva, right? Yeah, and, and I remember one in particular that I watched that stood out was the idea of how a bee sees a flower versus how we see a flower. Yes. Right? And that I think when they saw the flower, it looked like a bullseye in it. That, that's right. The, what's going on there is that the the eye of the human being has, uh, in the normal case, three different kinds of color receptors, um, a long, medium, and a short wavelength um, cone system. Uh, the bee also has color receptors, but it has color receptors that are sensitive in the ultraviolet, where we are not sensitive. And so, but we can sort of get a feeling of what the bee's vision is like by, by using cameras that do have sensors that are ultraviolet sensitive. And when you actually look through those kinds of cameras, you do see that there's a whole different world of patterns out there when you can see an ultraviolet that, that we're completely uh, missing as human beings. So it's really quite interesting. It is. I, I, that's just, I mean, I think it all comes back to... Um which is the name of your TED talk, which is, do we see reality as it is? All these examples. That, that's right. And it's the natural human inclination to just assume that, of course, we see reality as it is. And, and evolutionary theory is quite clear that um, the chances that we see reality as it is are literally zero. But in, in terms of our intellectual history, it's, it's really quite interesting. I mean, we used to think as a species that the Earth is flat because anybody can just look around and see that it's, to a first approximation, flat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and for, you know, if you're living 3,000 years ago in a small town um, and your, your world is limited to a couple hundred miles around where you were born, um, the idea that the Earth is flat is a, is a harmless and perhaps even useful fiction. And there's no reason to challenge that. That assumption, but if you want to, to to do world trade and and actually you know circumnavigate the Earth, flat Earth now gets in the way. You you need to you know let go of that. So so we we assumed that the Earth was flat because it looked that way. We we assumed that we see reality as it is and reality looked flat. We were wrong, but then we 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 realized you know around the time of Aristotle a little bit before that the Earth is is spherical or roughly spherical, but then we assumed that the Earth doesn't move because again, I mean, you can just look. If you look down, the Earth yep. isn't moving. Yep. It looks, it look, and, and it looks like it's the center of the universe. Every, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars clearly are going around us. So anybody could see that the Earth doesn't move and everything else goes around us. And so we assumed that the Earth is the center of the universe until Galileo and Copernicus. Uh, but again, we must, we we, you know, we thought we saw reality as it is, and we were wrong. It was, again, a harmless fiction unless you want to travel to the moon or to Mars. If you want to go to the moon or to Mars, then the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe has to be let go, and you have to have a much more sophisticated view of things. And so what I'm saying now is 
we, we took the earth being flat uh, as reality because we saw it that way, and then the earth being the unmoving center of the universe because we saw it that way. Now, where, where human beings have got it wrong is we assume that space and time and physical objects are reality as it is. And again, it's because that's the way it looks to us. And what evolution is telling us is that space and time and physical objects are no more close to reality than flat earth is. And we have to give up space and time and physical objects just like we had to give up flat earth. And for the same reason, our perceptions do not show us reality as it is. Wow. I mean, even on a day-to-day level of, of in our own lives, is it, it, it highlights to me is always question your assumptions about every right? About Absolutely. Yeah. About what's possible, about what's just question your assumptions. I think that, that that is one of the big take-home messages from all of this research is that things that we assumed were absolutely true and, and, and not to be questioned yeah. are radically false. Yeah. Wow, I think that's a great place to close out. Thank you, Don, so much for uh, just uh, unbelievable the knowledge and wisdom that you have shared in here. Um, where can people find out more about you? Well, thank you, Susanna. And, and people can find out more about me from my website. If you just Google Donald Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, I think my website is the first um, link that comes up. And all of my papers and videos are available free online, so people can find out more there if they'd like. Great. And then also on TED.com, they could find, um, they could do a search for um, Donald Hoffman and see your TED Talk there as well. That is correct. Great. Well, thank you again for your time. I so appreciate it. My pleasure, Susanna. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, and I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you, or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is cosmos in you, and of course, at our website, cosmosinyou.com. Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.